Welcome to Twice Born Podcasts. My name is Mike Bailey. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to get your feedback. And if you have any questions, please go to twiceborn.net. You can also find us on social media. I hope that you find this podcast helpful and informative. God bless. Today we're looking at chapter 14. Uh, chapter 14 of Romans. In the back are sermon-based studies. If you'd like to do a deeper dive in today's message, uh, you can go look at chapter 14, the entire chapter. We're only going to cover bits and pieces this morning and really focus in on uh, how should we deal with judgment? How should we uh, come into this issue of judgment? And, and uh, this past Thursday was the National Day of Prayer, and lots of churches all over the world got together to pray and lots of different groups of churches that have different traditions, uh, different practices, different approaches, different styles. They all got together and they worshiped together and they went to pray together as a unified body. And uh, it reminded me of the fact that God has made us different, but he's unified us in himself and the body. That there are a lot of differences, there's a lot of uniqueness uh, to all of us. And yet he calls us to be one, just like the body has many parts, yet they're unified in one body. And uh, the deacons and I meet once, actually twice a month, once to go over uh, just the vision and, and make sure that we're serving well here. And the second time we meet for a spiritual time of discussion. And right now we're reading this book called Sacred Pathways um, by Gary Thomas. And uh, some of you may have read his Sacred Marriage book. It's a great book to give to newlyweds. Uh, it's a very helpful Bible-based book uh, that gives some instruction on how to live a Christ-faith-based marriage. Sacred Pathways talks about the fact that God has made us all unique. And we have different approaches to how do we worship God. And I think one of the challenges we've come up to in the church is that if another church does it in a different way or someone uh, seeks God in a different way, that we're very quick to criticize or to um, undermine something because it's not how we approach God or it's not how we feel comfortable approaching Him. And so there's actually nine different ways that uh, Gary Thomas uh, kind of dives into. Different churches have different traditions, different ways they do it. One is a naturalist. Uh, how many of you enjoy going to the beach or going to the mountains, or just walking down a path, and you can sense the love of God. You sense His creative order. You sense the power and awe and wonder of nature. And for many people, to go into nature is, is really a time away with the Lord. And so to encourage those, if that's something that God has uh, uh, instilled in your heart, He's given it to you as a passion, then that is what He wants you to do. He wants you to go and engage in that. And so for many people, uh, just being out on the water or going into the mountain or going down a, a, a pathway in the woods is very, very uh, spiritual in the sense that you're growing close to God through it. And so, yes, you don't want to neglect meeting together as we do right now. Uh, the ocean doesn't become your church and the mountain doesn't become your church, but you have the opportunity, and I would say take that opportunity if, if that is an area that you have a passion for and to do that. And I think we, should, we need to be very careful um, that we don't undermine people that feel closer to God in nature. They feel a sense of awe and wonder when they're in nature. Sensates are those who enjoy the senses, um, visual, like you look around this room and you're taking that in, and uh, maybe you grew up and there were certain things, stained glass 
windows. Some of you grew up in churches that had stained glass windows. Some of you had murals. Some of you had different things within the church that meant a lot to you. And for someone to put those things down would hurt you. And uh, the same would be true of someone else, right? And so I think sometimes we can be critical of things just because it's not the thing that I would, would be most interested in or the thing that makes me the most committed to God, but it's there. And, and I think it's important that we do our very best in these areas. Uh, traditionalists, many of you grew up in a church that had traditions that meant a lot to you. Uh, traditions that helped you feel that, that God was with you and he was guiding you and gave you comfort and gave you peace and many of the things we do. Do you know when Jesus uh, ascended into heaven before he went, we know in Matthew 28, he said, therefore go into the entire world to every nation and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, make them disciples and I will, lo, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. He did not say, uh, go start on Sunday, be in a building that has a steeple with a cross, uh, make sure you sing this type of music, uh, that you start at 11 and you get done at noon before the other churches so you can get to lunch. Uh, Jesus did not have a prescript of all the things we should do to be his church. These are things that traditions that grew out of time. People said, what would be the best time for us to meet? Uh, the disciples chose Sunday because that was the resurrection of Christ. Not because Jesus said do this on Sunday, but because it was the resurrection of Christ. Because for their whole life, Saturday was Sabbath. Actually, not even Sabbath. Sundown Friday to sundown Saturday was Sabbath. And so these are traditions, and we need to recognize that these were things that God stirred in their heart, traditions that became important and powerful. But the tradition did not become sacred. The tradition was a way of, of connecting with God and worshiping God. And we need to be careful that we don't judge traditions, but that also we don't worship traditions. But we recognize there's a benefit, and for some people it is a very important part of their walk with the Lord. And maybe you're here today and say, part of the tradition of singing a hymn or being in a church like this means a lot to me. I value it. It's important. Um, and I believe we honor that. And we, and we believe that that's something that God has done for his glory. There's the aesthetic, uh, the person who likes a, the simplicity, a simple faith, not a complex faith, something of, of times of prayer and times of meditation, times of inward considering what God is doing on the inward man and then what he's calling us to do on the outward. Uh, there's the activist. How many of you know an activist? Someone who loves to get into the political field. They love to argue. Uh, they love uh, to just debate their neighbor about different topics. Um, this is a tough one because I didn't really think about it, but it really is. Some people get their most energy in life out of being activists. And sometimes God puts that in a person so they'll stand for righteousness. And so we should be careful that we don't attack the person because that is the, the way that God's working. But the person also needs to realize that we're to do everything in love and graciousness and compassion. And so there's these two sides, right? It's important. It is a way of worshiping God. It is a way of of standing for truth and righteousness, and yet there's also the side of it where there needs to be humility. But I am not called to judge that person because I am not the judge. And we also see here, he talks about the caregiver. Some of you, you gain the most amount of, of life and energy and your spiritual walk with the Lord when you're taking care of someone. We have those that come here on Tuesday and they work within the food pantry and they get energy to life and they walk away thinking this was a great day. Um, Caregiving is important. Some of you, your whole lives, you've caregived, either for children or for a parent 
or for someone who is ill. And that is something that is part of your makeup and that this is what God has created you to do. And to not do it would be to neglect something that God has placed within you. And so caregiving is a way of worship. Now you can overdo that as well. But we are not to judge, we're not to criticize, but to see this as a way that God uses uh, to, to worship him. There's the enthusiast who likes the mystery and the celebration. Um, some of you might have a grandkid or a, a young person in your life. They like to go to a dark room with a, small, a fog machine and loud music. And you say, how could this possibly be of God? But the truth is we need to be careful that we judge these things because there's no scripture that would back someone up who says that these are not of God. There's not a single scripture that talks about fog machines or drums or electric guitars or rock music. There's not a single scripture, but there is a scripture that says, do not judge. Do not look down upon someone because God has built something within them that gives them passion for the Lord. And anytime that someone is passionate about God, we should celebrate that, not criticize that. The passion for the Lord is either passion for Satan or it's passion for Jesus. And if Jesus' name is declared and his truths are revealed, we should uplift and say, what a wonderful thing. It's not my thing, but it's a wonderful thing. And so we need to be careful as believers that we don't look around and say, only the way that I do it is right. Only the way that I, I see it to be is the right way. No, what does Christ say? What does Paul say? What do the scriptures say? There's the, the, the contemplative, the person who likes to be alone. How many of you like to be alone? You're a loner. Don't, don't come talk to me. I don't want to be in crowds. I don't want to be in groups. I don't want to be, I don't ever ask me to come on stage and talk, right? But I enjoy being alone with God. I enjoy the time of prayer. I have a journal. I have a close walk with the Lord. I like to just uh, be alone with God. This is part of how he's wired me. And we're, we're not to judge that person because they don't want to be on the stage and they don't want to be the person that's in front. That's how God made you. And you should celebrate that, and, and you should pursue that. And we, we ought to encourage that, that God has called us in different ways to worship him. And then the final that he talks, and I believe there's a lot of them. There's the intellectual. Now that I have glasses, I'm the intellectual. <laughs> right? There are some people, they're just logical thinkers. It has to be logical. If it's not logical, it's not for them. And, and probably, and I'm not trying to cause problems here, but men tend to live in this place. It has to make sense. It has to be this way. If it doesn't make sense, I don't want to, I don't want to mess with it. And so there's those who get, uh, when they learn about creation or they learn about how the world works or they learn about the, the, the truths of God's word and how they're actual and applicable and real and you can study them and grow in them and, and learn and be educated in it and you can spend your whole life pursuing knowing God more, that gives them a deeper walk with the Lord and we should encourage that. And you might say, well, they don't have any emotion and they don't ever cry or, you know, whatever it is about that, that type of person that does that. We're to encourage them and not, not belittle or attack because it's a, just a different way that God makes us. And I think one of the challenges to being a believer is when I recognize it's okay that not everybody's like me. It's okay that not everyone uh, approaches God the exact same way I approach God. I think we got to recognize the things that matter is that there's one God. The things that matter is there's only one way to that God, and that is through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and that God's word is true from Genesis to Revelation. These are the things that matter. Everything else, everything else, a lot of these things are just personal preference. And it's not even just personal preference. It's the personal way that God made you 
and he wants you to pursue him and desire him. And so as we look at Romans chapter 14, I hope that we don't have war, but we have peace. I hope that we don't look at the other churches that are meeting in Port Orange, the other churches that are meeting in Florida and the United States, uh, and always with a critical eye, but, but that we would look at them with a positive eye of encouragement that that church is seeking the Lord, and they're sharing the gospel, and people are coming to know him, and they're baptized, and, and they're giving their hearts and lives to Christ, and we should celebrate that. And maybe there's different approaches, and maybe there's things that aren't the way I do it. But this is what chapter 14 tells us as believers. And so as we go to it, the question I have that I would, I would like the Lord to tell us and teach us through his word, what does God want us to know about judgment and criticism? What does God want me and you to know about judgment and criticism? And so as we go to his word, let's precede it with prayer. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your love and your grace. I thank you that you have revealed your truth through your word so that we may know it. Thank you that we're not all exactly the same, but we're all in you. Lord, thank you that even right now there are, there are people all over the United States, those in a different time, uh, different hours than us, have already met and worshiped. Those that are times after us will meet and worship you as their Lord and as their Savior that there will be repentance today, that there will be belief for the very first time, that there will be baptisms and rededications and commitments to overcome addictions and, and challenges, confessions of sin. And, and Lord, so much will happen today, and we're thankful for that, Lord. We pray that you would allow us to celebrate with those who are celebrating and mourn with those who mourn, and that, Lord, we would celebrate your, your body, your bride uh, here and all over this planet, Lord, that we would recognize that this is your work and you want us, Lord, to follow you uh, both in spirit and in truth. And so we desire to do that now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I believe every time we look at God's word, we need to have context. Uh, the context of the book of Romans is that Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, there were Jews in the church and there were Gentiles in the church. And what do we see in the first part of the New Testament is there is friction between the Jews and Gentiles uh, because of things like circumcision and food rights and clothing and these different laws that the Jews had been obeying for all of their lives. Now these Gentiles would come in and they wouldn't have any of those laws and somehow they were to be welcomed in as equal and it was causing a lot of friction. And so Paul had to say, he had to be definitive through the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the one that's guiding. The Holy, one, the Holy Spirit is the one that's teaching. And he wants everyone to be clear about some things so there's no confusion. And so if you turn over to Galatians, before we go to Romans, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get you one. Uh, you can download an app with the Bible. But this is our food today, the Bible, the Word of God. Galatians 3.28. It reads this. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since they are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. And so the starting point for us is we need to recognize is the Jewish culture of, 
uh, going to the temple and sacrifice and all the, the 613 laws that they had, that had been fulfilled in Christ on the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection. Those things are, are past. Now, behold, everything has become new. Uh, Peter, who was a devout Jew, uh, he has a dream, and the Holy Spirit is, is lowering on the sheet uh, different animals that are unclean, and, and he says, eat. And what does Peter say? He argues with God. He talks back to God. Do you think it's a good idea to talk back to God? That's what Peter does. Does Peter really think he's going to win? It's like sometimes when I get in an argument with my wife, I, what am I even thinking? I'm not going to win, right? But he, he says, certainly not, Lord. I've never eaten any of those my entire life. And God says to him, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. What I have made holy, do not call unholy. And he says, there's a, new, there's a newness, Peter. Uh, those things are no longer what you have to focus on. Now you must focus on loving me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. All those laws were leading to this grace point. They were leading to the place now that you were to, to love God by loving others. You were to love God by, by studying his word that, that was being revealed at that very time. But there was no more Greek and there was no more Jew. There was no more male. There was no more female. There was no more slave. There was no more free. We were all one in Christ. Those things that most identified us in the world now were not the thing that first identified us. And I think today, more than any other day, God has brought to the surface the idea of identity, hasn't it? How many people are arguing about what their identity is? What is my identity? What is my gender? What is my, these different things? The identity of a human today is what is it question? And what does God say? All of those things, there's only one identity that builds on all other things. And that is that you're a child of Jesus. You've been adopted into the covenant that God made with Abraham, that he would bless the world by him through a savior. And so when we look around today, Christ doesn't look down on this earth. God does not look in this room and say, this person is this age, this person is this color, this person has this ethnicity, this person has this background. He does not look at us and, and put all of the different labels that we put on each other. He looks at it and says, there's my child. There's my son. There's my daughter. There's my other son. There's my other daughter. Right? He does not look at us and say, what uh, economic structure? Where are you? What's your, how much money do you have? How much education do you have? He does not look at us and gauge us that way. The world does, yes, but God does not. And when he looks at his church especially, he says, here I see you're my bride. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. I have redeemed you. I've paid for you. I went to the cross for you. I paid everything that you may be clean. And I look at you and I see you as mine. Now what I need you to start doing is seeing each other the same way. I need the church to not look at each other and judge each other and criticize each other and look for what's wrong, but look to uplift and encourage and support. This is not easy. Because our tendency through our flesh and sin is to be critical and to undermine and to attack and to challenge. And so that leads us, uh, there was an issue between judgment between the Jews and the Gentiles, leads us to the question of Romans 14. Here's what Romans 14 verse 10 says. But you, who's he talking about? The everybody, but mostly here he's speaking to the church in Rome. Why do you judge your brothers and sisters? Asks a question. Why are you judging your brothers and sisters? Or you, he goes a little bit further, why do you despise 
your brother or sister. You see how that escalates. He says, first, why do you judge everyone else in the church? Why do you look at them like the world looks at them? Tall, short, rich, poor. Why are you using the same scale the world does to judge people that are your brothers and your sisters? These are your spiritual blood. These are the ones that have been covered with the blood of Christ. This is the bride. Why do you look around and judge them to determine whether they live up to your own uh, idea of what should be? You are not the judge. You are the child of God. He is the judge. And we can fall into this trap, and I, I've fallen into the trap, and I've been in churches where people fall into the trap of becoming so judgmental about every little thing. I saw this person doing this. I can't believe that person would do that. How could they do this? How could they do that? Uh, I was in a church where at the end of the service, someone would come up to me and tell me how they didn't like what someone was wearing every single week. And I said, what did Jesus say to you? Did, was Jesus mad about what they were wearing? Or were you mad about what they were wearing? And, this is so, and I'm not trying to, I'm trying to say I struggle with this. But he doesn't even end there with judgment. Yes, there's judgment. It's part of our nature to judge each other. But then he says, why do you despise each other? Right? Why do you despise? You don't just judge. You despise them. Right? Some of the places where there's the, in a, you go into a town, you want to find where probably there's been the greatest divisive thing is probably in the church. And the people know, well, this church split because of this, and this church split because of that, and this church is known because they split about this, and you're not going to believe what they did. And you talk to one side and you talk to the other and they hate each other more than they hate Satan. And this is not a new thing. This has been going on since Paul was writing to Rome. Why do you despise each other? Why are you allowing this level of dislike and hate come in your heart for someone who is your brother or your sister in Christ? That's a problem. Would you agree? This is a problem that we see. And it, I don't sense that here as much, but it is always something that could be right under the surface. To, to believe that it's not anywhere, not even in our hearts at all, would be very foolish, wouldn't it? We need to protect against it. We need to be on our guard against it. We need to consider in this moment, do I really love the people of Christ? Do I really love my brothers and sisters? Do I really have a, a desire uh, for the best for them? And, and I would look at them and want to encourage their walk and, and, and promote what's going on in their life that is good. And, and, and if there's something that needs to change, that I would lovingly help them and not, uh, not criticize, judge, and, and hope that, that something falls apart for them. This is a real issue. This is something important for all of us to recognize. I, I ask myself, why do we struggle with giving grace to other believers? Why do we struggle so much to give grace to other believers? Why is that a struggle? It's been going on for 2,000 years. It's something that, we, that I believe God wants us to, to grapple with today. He wants us to, to examine our hearts, examine our actions, examine our attitudes. Is there someone that I'm holding a grudge against? Is there someone, every time I see them, I think that something negative about them? Every time I'm around them, a negative thought arises. Is there someone that, 
that I despise by my thoughts and actions. These are the things we're called to in these moments. Is this is how we lovingly grow. We bring the problem to the surface. We confess it and we move on from it and we live in a new way. And so today that would be my prayer as, as we see Paul dealing with with this issue in the church, because he gives us some hope. Romans 14 and verse 8 then goes on to say this, If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over the dead and the living. I think once we recognize part of Jesus as Lord is how we treat other people. I remember when I was a youth pastor, kids would get so excited. We'd, we'd go to camp and they'd get so excited and be like, I'd be willing to die for Christ. I'd be willing to, to I'd really willing to go across the ocean to a place where it's illegal and go to jail and be put to death for him. And I said, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Now go to your high school and live for him. Right? Now start every day living for him. Right? It, to think about things that, that are yet to come, it can be easy to, to think big. But sometimes God brings it in close. Well, what about tomorrow? Are you going to live for him? Living for Christ means Lord over how you treat other people. It's saying Christ died for me that he would be all in all in me, meaning that he would saturate his life into every area, which was my views and opinions and how I treat other people. And maybe today I need to take my view of other people or my feelings towards other people and put it on that cross and let it die. Because it is death, right? And if I want to live for Christ, then I need to die to self. If I want to live like Christ, then I have to love those who hate me and, and treat with respect those who despitefully use me. Remember, Christ, is he comes into Jerusalem knowing that he has to die on a cross. He willingly walks in and he says, nothing could be done here except God allows it and I allow it. And I'm doing it to honor my father. And as he goes in, they're spitting on him, they're whipping him, they're, they're mocking him, um, they're bludgeoning him. At any moment, he could have said, this is enough. I'm not going to put up with these people anymore. How could they treat me this way? And yet, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Grace upon grace. Have you ever in your heart, when someone did something to you that really bothered you, that really got under your skin, that really was annoying to you, did you say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Have you ever considered in that moment that that's what calling him Lord means? That we are to give grace, even when grace isn't merited, even when grace isn't earned. This is what defines us. This is what Paul is writing to the Roman church about because he knows that we all struggle with it. This is one of the easiest sermons to talk about and one of the toughest to actually do. Why? Because when I'm tired or I'm hungry or I'm stressed, things aren't going my way in a day, it's hard to love everybody. It's hard to give grace. It is hard to say, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. They don't know how that affected me. They don't know how that, 
that irritated me. But that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be like. That's the new life in Christ. That's the new way of following Christ in our lives. He goes on to say um, that he might be Lord over the dead and the living. He is Lord over all. Will we submit to that? It's interesting this past week, um, how many of you recognize Cinco de Mayo at all? Right? So this is one of those holidays that everyone thinks differently about, right? Cinco de Mayo. I used to think it was the Day of the Dead. It's not the Day of the Dead. Um, it isn't even the Mexican Revolution. It was just a battle they had that kind of turned the tide with the French and eventually led to Napoleon III uh, leaving Mexico. But there are a lot of things I don't know about Mexico. How many of you are historians about Mexico? None of us, but yet you've heard of Cinco de Mayo because they put signs everywhere and all the bars have a great time for Cinco de Mayo, right? But when you study the history of Mexico, and, and I'm, I'm always like, something's happening, I want to know why. <laughs> I'm one of those intellectuals. Uh, <laughs> I, I said, why is this happening? Why are they having this celebration? Well, you see that man on the screen, Miguel, Miguel Hidalgo. He was a priest, and he helped lead the Mexicans to a revolution. Now, if you look at the history of Mexico, the Aztecs controlled Mexico for the majority of prehistory, the history that we, up to the point where we know today, the Aztecs were the ones who controlled Mexico until the Spaniards came over and they took control. They had control for about 300 years. Miguel Hidalgo uh, led a revolt against the Spaniards and they had victory and, and they, they did declare independence in eight, the early 1800s. Which led me also to another question. Who here believes that Mexico is older than the United States? Raise your hand if you think Mexico is older. Who here thinks the United States is older? The United States is older than Mexico. We declared our independence in 1776. Mexico declared its independence in 1810. We are older. Did you ever think that way? No, we don't think that way. We think Mexico is this old country. No, we're the older country. We're all young because they came from Spain and from France to this place. But it's interesting if you go to Mexico, they don't look at Cinco de Mayo like we do. Cinco de Mayo in the United States was something to show the relationship between Mexico and the U.S. Uh, we helped them. We supported them with guns and ammunition and money to help defeat the French. But the real thing that if you go to Mexico, and I've been to Mexico City, I have friends that are missionaries in Mexico, Cinco de Mayo is a patriotic day to remember a patriotic person that sacrificed himself. Uh, Miguel Hidalgo was shot at firing squad for being the leader of a revolution. And as I read that, I think about the kingdom of Mexico. He had a love and passion for that kingdom, and he was willing to die for that kingdom because he had such a great love for his fellow Mexicans. And it is an example for me today. Do I love my fellow believers enough to live for the Lord and to die for the Lord? This, so this, this, this holiday I didn't know anything about had such a direct reflection of what God is teaching us, the Holy Spirit is teaching us in Romans 14. Do I love people to the point of sacrifice that I would both live for Christ and die in his name, loving his church, loving his people? Can I, Miguel Bailey, <laughs> would I be able to be set apart, to be said, he loved the church and he loved Christ to the point the world had to get rid of him. 
I found it's easy to love God's word and get smarter in it, but still not love people. Because loving people is messy. This priest Hidalgo, I guarantee, didn't love every Mexican, but he loved the Mexican people enough that he would give his life for them. This is what we're called to. It doesn't mean that you have to like everyone or like how every church operates or how every other Christian lives out their life, but you're called to have grace and you're called to love the church as a whole. And am I willing to do that today? Am I willing to let the Lord be at the very center of who I am? Because we have something worth living for and we have something worth dying for. You and I in this room, if you know Christ, if you confessed and believed, you have something to live for today and you have something to die for today. Are you committed? The way that you show that that's your view, that that's your faith, that that's your belief is how you treat the other believers. They will know, they will know that you are my children. They will know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another because you love each other, not because you're smarter, not because you're more established, not because of any of these things, where you were born, who you were born to, what traditions you have. No, your love for each other is so valuable and so important. Romans 14, 11 says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account for himself to God. The number one reason you shouldn't judge anyone is because you're going to be judged. <laughs> judge not lest ye be judged. Judge people to the level where you want to be judged. So that if we think of this room as a courtroom, imagine this for a moment. This is a courtroom. The judge has not yet come in. Uh, his gavel is sitting here. There's his desk and his seat. Uh, the jury is over here. Those who have come to watch uh, the, the, the court trial are out there, and you're sitting here, what would happen if you went to a U.S. court? I was in the one over in Orlando. I got called for jury duty. You don't mess around, right? But what if I got up and went and sat in the judge's seat? And I said, all rise. The Honorable Mike Bailey is proceeding today. What would happen to me? What would happen to you? You see, the problem is too many times in life, that's what we're doing. We're going to the place we're not supposed to be. We get in the seat of the judge and we look around and we begin casting judgments when we were never put in that position. There's not a single place in Scripture that says you are to be the judge of how other churches operate. You are to be the judge of how other Christians live. You are to be the judge of the fruit of other people. You are the judge of you because you are going to stand before the judge of judges. And he says, it would be better for you to be a cheerleader than trying to be a judge. It would be better than all you ever did is cheered people on in their walk for Christ and say, keep going, go that way. Hey, you might be going the wrong way. Go the right way. Go the right way. You are doing the right thing. Keep it going. Keep going. Then for you to sit in the seat of the judge. Do you know what I hear so much from people when I go around and talk to them about church? What do they say about us? What do they say about us? What is our identity in the culture? What are we known for? Those Christians are so non-judgmental. Is that what they say? No, they say those Christians are so judgmental. Listen, yes, there is a judge, and yes, every sin that is ever committed will be held in account, and only those sin covered by the blood of Christ will be redeemed. They will no longer be costly or, or set into judgment. 
But those sins that have not been redeemed will be judged. That is one of the wondrous things of God, that everything will be made right through judgment and his wrath and his holiness. But you're not the judge, and I'm not the judge. And Paul keeps telling him, stop judging everybody. And there's no place that says you should be the judge. And yet, what do we keep doing? We keep climbing back into the judge's seat. And people keep saying, even the world says, why are you in the judge's seat? Get out of that. Get out of that seat. And you know what? As a pastor, I can be the most judgmental person in this room. And so I recognize that I recognize that this is a danger. I recognize when I preach or when I teach or when I am involved with people that this is a very sensitive thing that they could be easily swayed to believe that I think I'm better and I'm judging them. And somehow I'm scanning the horizon and looking at everyone's life and saying, does it add up? Is it what it should be? Instead of scanning the horizon, who is sick and needs Christ that I can share? Who's doing great things for the Lord that I can encourage to keep going and not give up and not quit? Who's, who's about to give up they need an encouraging word. They need the gospel in their life. They need hope today. Who's in this room is holding on to something they should let go so they can have victory and grace and peace and rest? This is what we're called to. This is what Romans 14 is all about. Because we only have one judge, right? There's only one judge, and he's the one that created us. And one day, we're going to turn ourselves over to him. And he's going to say, what have you done? with Christ, my son. What have you done with the life that I've given you? And finally, Romans 14, 17 says this, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. Paul kind of wraps up his letter and he brings it to this place. He says, yes, judging at some points can feel really good because you're, you're setting things right. You're setting a standard right. But the truth is, in the end, what is right is that you are righteous before the Lord, that you have the joy of the Holy Spirit, that you are guided by the Holy Spirit. And when you're guided by the Holy Spirit, then you can live in freedom. Then you can live in grace. And so this morning, as we come to this issue of criticism and judgment, I believe the best thing we can do is give grace that we've been given and allow the judge to be God. Let's give grace upon grace. Let's be first in line for grace and last in line for judgment. Let's be known in our community as we want the very best for you, and the best is the gospel. The best is that you confess, believe, and follow Christ. That's the very best. I'm not judging you where you are today. I'm not judging your lifestyle. I'm not judging your, your secrets that you have. I'm telling you there's a better way. I'm telling you there's hope. I'm telling you there's a truth that can set you free. I'm telling you there's a God who created that loves you, who created you to worship him, created you to live a righteous life. And when you come to that understanding and you come to that faith and you become to that belief, your life will be transformed and all in the past will be behind you. Behold, everything will be new in front of you. This is what we're called to. This is what we're called to as a church. We are the bride of Christ. When Christ returns, I don't want the bride to have a black eye. I don't want the bride to have a ripped dress. I don't want the bride to limp her way in to the wedding. See, if we're beating each other up, we are the bride. We're the bride. If you're beating other people up, you're beating up the bride 
of Christ. She needs to be beautiful when he returns. You know how you make a beautiful bride? You support, you encourage, you uplift, you walk alongside, you challenge in a loving way so that things can be done right for the Lord. We want a beautiful bride when he returns. What are you and I doing to make this bride beautiful? If you don't know Christ as your Savior today, to come to know Christ is to be part of the bride. You become part of what he's come to to bring to his home, to be part of him for the rest of eternity. And so it's so important. It's so important. And so here's three things I believe that, that will give us victory in this area. Number one, confession. Confession. Today, am I willing to confess that I have been critical or I am critical? And my first thought is always critical. And my first view is always negative. And I, there are people I, I just can't think good of and I can't say good to. And I need your help, Holy Spirit. I recognize it's wrong, and I want to submit to you and your righteousness, so I want to confess it. I judge other churches. I judge other people. I am very judgmental as a person, and I need to confront that in my life. And I need to confess that to you today. So confession. Until we confess, we carry this baggage of sin that Christ has died for and wants to give us victory over. Secondly, I would say once you've committed and and you've made this this confession, committing to that walk with the Lord, that now I recognize that this is a stumbling block. Now I recognize this is a trap. These are dangerous things. If If I allow myself to go down a path of criticism and ridicule and judgment, it is a dangerous path that will lead me into despair. And so I need to commit to living and having people in my life that encourage me to live in a way that is holy and righteous and encouraging and supportive of believers in my life. We have groups that meet here, and I'm encouraged every time I go. It becomes so life-giving just to hear how God is working and what they see in Scripture when they read it and how God is, is teaching them new things. That encourages me. That builds me up as a believer. That allows me to walk in a way that I, that I know that God is with me and for me. We need each other in this way. If you don't share what God's doing in your life, and I don't share what God is doing in my life, we become isolated and fearful. We need these moments. On Tuesday, we'll have our our Women on Missions luncheon and just to sit around and eat lunch together and talk and hear what God is doing in your life. What an encouragement to support each other and uplift each other and and to speak a good word and to give a compliment and to give a, a, a praise for how God has used you or used an event for his glory. We should be known for praising God by what he's doing all the time than criticizing the world. The world is lost And we should pray for the world that it would come to repentance. But we don't exist to condemn the world. We exist to glorify God. So let us confess, let us commit, and then let us encourage. I'm going to give you a challenge this week. Write a letter of encouragement to someone. Write an actual physical letter of encouragement to someone. Encourage someone you know. We all know someone that's down in the dumps. We all know someone that's just Things aren't going their way. It's a season of challenge. It's a season of hardship. It's a season of loneliness. They could use some encouragement. You were put on planet Earth. God put you here. He put me here to encourage those people. Maybe you need some encouragement. You know the best way to get encouragement is to give it away. If you feel lonely, if you feel down in the dumps, if you feel isolated, if you feel like nothing's going your way, the best way to get out of that is to encourage somebody else.
Write a letter of encouragement to someone. Pray about, God, who is the person you want me to encourage this week? Who's the one you want me to write an email to, a handwritten letter to, make a call to, and be very intentionally encouraging to them? Let's put feet to these words. Let's put action to our faith. Let's encourage someone in the name of Christ, knowing that he is encouraging us. He is praying to God for us today that we would live our faith out in our life. Would you make that commitment of encouragement? Would you make a commitment this week that we wouldn't be just hearers of these words, but that we would be doers? And that we would begin to build a reputation within our family, within our neighborhood, and within our town that we love God and we love people. And we're pointing to hope and we're pointing to a day when, when the creator comes back and sets us free eternally in his home to be his children, to be brothers and sisters, that all these things that have defined us and, and caused us so much challenge will be gone. Behold, everything will be made new. Will you make that commitment today? Will you say yes to Jesus? Will you say yes to the Holy Spirit? Let's pray.